0: And so I was really mad and I was really young and stupid. And so I texted him one morning and it was the day I was supposed to train him. And I said, hey, you know, if you wanna be the producer, learn how to do it on your own like I did. He showed Angie the text I don't think he knew that Angie was going to freak out the way that she did, but Angie just fired me. She cut my key card. She said, you're not allowed to come here anymore. And I remember some of the DJs calling me and being like, hey, Holly, just FYI, like Angie says, like, we can't even talk to you anymore.
1: It starts with just taking that leap
0: to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart.
1: Choose something that even if, fails, even if it fails, you are going to be proud of. It doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And today we'll be talking to Hala Taha, who went from doing full days of unpaid grunt work to reeling in 30,000 a month. Oh, and I should clarify that this was just from one client. Now, Hala is Yap Media founder and CEO and the host of the Young and Profiting podcast. But she's no stranger to disappointment. Like many of our other founders, Hala's experienced her fair share of failure but she too turned those failures into fuel for success. From working for Hot 97 Radio in college to losing out on an MTV deal, Hala never gave up her pursuit to be heard. And ultimately, she would help others to do the same. Her story has no shortage of drama along the way, but it begins in a much simpler time with an easygoing childhood in New Jersey. I want to go back to the beginning. Tell me about your earliest memories growing up.
0: I remember being outside a lot. I was a little bit of a tomboy. So I love to be outside and play with bugs and collect worms and do things like that. I was a little bit of a tomboy back then. (laughs) I remember going to work with my dad. You know, he was the chief of surgery at multiple hospitals. What
1: does going to work with your dad look like if he's chief of surgery? Are you going in on the surgeries?
0: It's like taking me to the hospital and then I'm like hanging out in the cafeteria eating like, you know, those like little milk things. That's like what I remember remember, like, drinking those little milk things in the cafeteria. But yeah, like, I had a great childhood. You know, we were super blessed, uh, pretty well off. I wasn't very spoiled, but I had a really good childhood and a lot of great role models around me.
1: Seems like in terms of family unit, you had, like, a very strong insulating force against you know whatever life might throw at you but then life through 9-11 into america yeah and that seemed to particularly affect you and your family can you tell me a little bit about why <music>
0: Yeah, so before 9-11, my family was really treated like how an Italian family would be treated or just any sort of like immigrant family. We were different, but we were definitely accepted. You know, after 9-11, everybody started to look at us differently. And before 9 11, I was, you know, really popular. I would go sleep over my friend's house all the time. I was invited to all the parties. Anything that I really tried out for, I would get some sort of opportunity. I wasn't denied. And then after 9 11 happened, Things were different. Like I lost a lot of friends. I remember being like yelled at in the hallway and called things like terrorist. People have been picked on way worse than I was. So I don't want to say that I was like bullied, but there was definitely a period of time where me and my cousins were treated differently.
1: Did that different treatment make you view yourself differently?
0: 100%.
1: How did that change your view of your cultural identity?
0: Some of my earliest memories from 9-11, I remember being so upset finding out that they were saying that it was Arabic people who had done it. C-100 is a very popular radio station in New York. And they were having this whole thing where people would call in and they wanted people to just like express themselves. And I remember trying to so desperately get through on that radio line to say, like, hey, I'm Arabic. And like, we had no idea. We had nothing to do with this. And this is so sad that everybody thinks that, like, we know something we knew something. Nobody knew anything. Like, we're just normal people. But I didn't get through. I just feel like that was a point where I started to divert from my culture. I was like very ashamed of being Arabic and Muslim. The other thing that happened is, I sort of alluded to this, is I stopped getting opportunities. In high school, I tried out for cheerleading, I didn't get on the cheerleading team. I tried out for volleyball, I didn't get on the volleyball team. I was in the plays, but I was never the lead, even though I used to be the lead in middle school and elementary school. You know, I never got the lead part.
1: When this was happening, did you know that this was because of racism? Or did you think that it was because of your ability?
0: Looking back, I feel like I had some sort of inkling, especially with like the musical things, because I literally had the best voice in school. And so when I didn't make the talent show, I knew that was racism. Everything else, I feel like, you know, maybe I wasn't the best volleyball player, you know, or maybe I wasn't the best dancer to be a cheerleader. Who knows? It was disappointing, but I feel like it gave me thick skin.
1: For many of us, being treated like everyone else is something that we take for granted. But in high school, Hala watched that all crumble beneath her feet. In the wake of 9-11, discrimination against Muslims skyrocketed, leaving millions of Muslims exposed and vulnerable to racially charged backlash from other Americans. For Hala, the shift was evident. It felt as though everything she had worked towards was being taken away, simply because of her cultural identity. But here, at university, she was welcomed into the community. Opportunities reopened, and she could seek out success. Sure, it didn't change the fact that she wasn't at Rutgers with her friends, but she had good things going for her. She just had to overcome a few obstacles first. And like she says, all that rejection served a purpose and served as preparation for what lay ahead. But this new gleaming reality was only temporary.
0: I actually wanted to be a singer my whole life. And so in college, freshman year, I started singing and songwriting. I worked with different producers and record these songs. And I thought that me being at the radio station would be the easiest way to get my music played on the radio. W-Q-A-C! New no. Only on Hot 97, baby. I also was interested in being a personality. I was actually had a show on my college radio program and did that for a little bit. And with that background, I applied to be an intern at Hot 97, which was New York's number one hip hop and R&B station. And so I started in the production department, which was like the corporate side. But within six months, they recruited me to be Angie Martinez's associate producer intern. Angie Martinez is known as the voice of New York. At the time, she had the number one radio show in America called The Angie Martinez Show. Uh, we had a different celebrity there every single week.
1: Angie. Hi, guys. I love the album. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. That probably means that you were just meeting a ton of celebrities all the time, right?
0: Oh, my gosh. Every day would be a new celebrity. Sometimes we wouldn't know until last minute. You know, it was it was really exciting. And, and everybody in college would... Knew me now as like, call from Hot 97, call the girl that has like the coolest job. And I was absorbed with being at the station and I eventually had to drop out of school because I was failing all my classes. And I was like, all right, let me just stop going to school because I obviously care more about this job. And I just started focusing on Hot 97 full time.
1: When you were quitting school, what was the roadmap that you had in your head where you're like, okay, this is this is the dream?
0: Well, I thought I was going to be the next Angie Martinez. I was being primed to be talent for the station. And they even had me recording commercials on air, you know, and and I was like one of the voices of Hot 97. So I thought that I was going to be a personality eventually. And I probably would have had I, you know, just worked for free for an extra two years or so. I probably would have ended up on the radio station, but things didn't work out as planned. What happened was, is I really just wanted to get paid. I wanted to be an official employee so that I could tell my parents like, hey, like I actually am an employee because they used to kind of tell me, what are you doing? They're not paying you. Why are you doing this? And so a paid job opened up. Uh, Angie Martinez's producer was kind of lazy and he got fired. And I had been traditionally and historically doing his job. And this kid that I was really good friends with, his name is DJ Drewski. They hired him to be the producer and they wanted me to train him. And I still wasn't being paid and he was already getting paid. And so I was really mad and I was really young and stupid. And so I texted him one morning and it was the day I was supposed to train him. And I said, hey, you know, if you want to be the producer, learn how to do it on your own like I did. He showed Angie the text. I don't think he knew that Angie was going to freak out the way that she did, but Angie just fired me. She cut my key card. She said, you're not allowed to come here anymore. She said, nobody can talk to you anymore.
1: Why do you think she was so strict?
0: I think part of it was she felt like, holla, I'm giving you like a golden ticket to be on Hot 97. Like every girl would be in your shoes right now. Give me a break. So maybe she felt like I was ungrateful.
1: So how did you cope with that? Cause that's like your identity. That was your path. You dropped out of school for that what was the aftermath of that like
0: well i felt like the world had ended i felt like i lost my identity my twitter was like holla from hot 97 like
1: that's how everyone knew you too that's your whole community like that's everything that was
0: everything all my best friends worked at the station all my mentors worked at the station it, it literally was such a stab in the heart and then especially having done that all for free i was like what did i do i ruined my life And so I quickly thought of a new idea. And I feel like one of the reasons why I'm thankful that I got no opportunities in high school is because I was so used to rejection. And so for me, like it was like another rejection and I'm so quick to get back on my feet.
1: So as it turns out, those rough high school years didn't prove to be so worthless after all. Now, when faced with rejection, Hala knew how to weather it. But getting to this point wasn't easy. She poured everything into these unpaid hours. And at this point, her identity was completely consumed by the station. Something that made the forced departure all the more difficult. I mean, think about it. She quit school to pursue this opportunity. And for what? There was no backup. She had adhered to the idea that she needed to pay her dues to suffer in order to succeed. But the idea that people have to tolerate a toxic work environment to be successful is an outdated concept that perpetuates abuse. In retrospect, Paula can see it for what it is. But at the time, it was a carrot and stick lifestyle. So when she lost her job, she had no other choice but to reinvent her path to success. And she already had a new idea brewing.
0: So I got fired, I think on a Thursday. And by Sunday, I was working on my new idea. And I had the idea to start StrawberryBlunt.com, the sorority of hip hop. And it was going to be a hip hop and entertainment blog site. At the time, blogs were super hot. That was like the new hot thing. I had been blogging for DJ enough, And so like I knew how to blog and how to use WordPress. And I was like, I could figure this out. And I started recruiting girls on Craigslist and Twitter. And like two weeks into it, I had 14 girls signed up to the sorority of hip hop. It was girls from all over the entertainment industry.
1: What do you think the underlying emotion that was fueling the sorority of hip-hop? Like, what do you think that emotion was? (laughs) revenge. I was like,
0: no one's going to blackball me from this industry. And I got my revenge. And within three months, we were one of the most popular hip-hop sites in America. And I figured out how to hack Twitter. So basically, what we would do is every time we had a blog post, we would at a celebrity in the title and then i had it hooked up to all of the sorority sisters twitter accounts and we all had like decent following and so drake would get like 50 pretty girls tweeting him like at drake you know releases new song and he'd retweet us that's how we blew up because all these celebrities would retweet us and a lot of these celebs recognized me from hot 97 and wanted to support me And then all of a sudden, the same DJs who wouldn't pay me minimum wages, you know, I would go feed their car meters for them and get them coffee, would start calling me up and be like, "Holla, I need you to host this party with me. Or can
1: you put this song on your blog?
0: Yeah. And then all the I was like on the side by side flyers with them uh, became their peer. I went from being an intern to a peer and literally got shouted out on Hot 97 more than I did when I worked there. And it's just so funny how things changed so quickly.
1: How long do you feel like you use that fuel?
0: I think once they started asking me to co-host the parties with them, I was just like, all right, whatever. Like, let's just keep it moving. I had to collaborate with them if I wanted to make it, you know, because they were running the hip hop scene and everything in New York. Those were the top dogs. So I kind of had to play nice. And even Angie Martinez, she tried to get me on Love and Hip Hop and tried to do nice things for me afterwards. But the older I get, the more I start to like, unforgive her now I look back and I'm like man I would never treat my employees like that and even though she tried to get me on love and hip-hop it was for her own benefit I was cool and she was trying to get herself a good look that she brought somebody to Mona Scott that could have been good for the show you know so it's like everything that she did was really opportunistic and not really to my benefit so I, I look back on that and uh, I realize that I don't like her and I don't ever want to talk to her again <laughs>
1: We can't verify Angie Martinez's motives or intentions, but it's clear that Hala felt she couldn't trust her anymore. While her newfound success must have been exhilarating, it also meant that her persona and brand were now valuable commodities. This change in circumstances added a new dynamic to many of her relationships. When listening to Hala, it becomes evident how important socializing was in her field. This must have made it difficult to compartmentalize between her personal and professional life. What was networking and what was genuine bonding? Who was her friend and who was just using her? The interpersonal element would get even more complicated when the strawberry blunt girls got an opportunity to reach a whole new level of fame
0: throughout the whole story of hip hop. I did it for three years. MTV was always circling around us. So right in the beginning, I would say like three months in, once we started getting retweeted by celebrities, they caught notice and we were doing online radio shows on the side. So we had this blog, we would host events and then we also had the Strawberry Blunt show. And so MTV reached out to me three months in and was like, hey, we want to do a small pilot. Can we come shoot you for a weekend? We're like, sure. Like we all got like matching shirts that said like SB on it. And we did like a little like radio show with them and they filmed us at a restaurant. Nothing crazy. And then they decided that they weren't going to proceed. And it it wasn't a big deal because I was like, well, this is cool. Like we got we almost got a like a reality TV show. Uh, What could happen next? And it didn't really disappoint us. Two and a half years later or so, we kept building and building. We had three different online radio shows by then. We were hosting concerts by this time and I had probably 150 girls in and out. We had 50 girls under me. I was the president and MTV reached back out. And this time they they were really serious. And they said, hey, like this is for real. They brought us in signing. I was getting paid three times more than everybody else as the lead. They signed five other girls we had a lot of drama. Like we were a bunch of fun, catty girls that were building something amazing. I think it would have been an an awesome show. But at the end of it all, after we had filmed for so long, and I literally thought that this was this was it, like, I'm finally going to make it. It's been probably, let's say five, six years in total of me basically working for free. And so I had thought I had made it because we were going to get paid like, you know, $6,000 an episode. To me, that was like, I was rich. Unfortunately, Tiffany Williams, her name is. I remember her calling me and saying, "Holla, I'm really sorry, but um, they decided not to air the show. We're not going to air your show. And I, I just remember like hysterically crying right away and, and being like, what do you mean? Because I had just felt like, again? Like, what do you mean? Like, you filmed me all summer. And also, all the girls hated each other now because they kept trying to get us to fight with each other. And I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't do this anymore. I told all the girls, I was like, I want to pretend that we're going to shut down. And we did this whole, I was like, I just need a two-week break. Let's pretend that we shut down. Let's put out a campaign and we can make it like funny and then say like, just kidding afterwards. So we did this whole campaign, Strawberry Blunt shut down, Strawberry Blunt shut down. And then two weeks came and I was like, I don't want to start this again, guys. And so many of the girls were were so mad at me. And I didn't know that I wasn't going to not restart it. But I had just decided like after that two week break, I was like, this feels nice to just like focus on myself and not have to worry about anybody else. And how long could I be the president of the sorority of hip hop? I'm getting older. Like this doesn't really make sense anymore.
1: Do you think you lost sight of why you started this and what it meant through the show?
0: Oh, I think that we would have been huge if I had just held on another six months. I feel that I was so close to striking gold. Something snapped and I was like, I can't do this anymore and I just shut everything down.
1: What do you think it was?
0: Well, there were so many things wrong with what I was doing. Like, it was called strawberryblunt.com and that's wasn't the best for brands. We did get sponsored. We got sponsored by American Apparel and Reebok, everything like that, but that's kind of And everybody knew us as the Strawberry Blunt girls. And I was like, how can I grow into this? I can't grow into this. Like, why did I call it that? It was cool at the time, but now I feel like I've grown out of this. And then also I felt like everyone was getting older. And I just thought, what are we going to be? The sorority of hip hop forever? This doesn't make any sense.
1: But you said you were close to striking gold. So like, what do you think you weren't seeing then
0: we could have gotten a show anywhere oxygen wanted us bravo wanted us vh1 i was just so set on mtv i was like well if mtv doesn't want us i don't want anything now that i see how everything panned out for myself i'm okay with the fact that we didn't get a reality tv show on mtv because that might have ruined the rest of my career But the reason why I decided to really stop the sorority of hip hop is because the girls who worked for me, I felt like didn't appreciate everything that I did. I was the one who was building the website and who basically had to work full time on this and giving everybody all these opportunities. I just want to be responsible for myself now. I felt like it was an amazing experience and I wish it would have worked out a little bit better. But I also felt like I needed to be successful on my own before I could make anybody else successful.
1: And so to start pursuing that success, you went back to school, and eventually that led to HP can you walk me through how you transitioned from Strawberry Blunt to HP? Because that seems like a really funny transition to go from like your own startup that's kind of edgy to HP, the corporate computer company.
0: Oh my god, it was so funny. I don't even know how they gave me that job, to be honest. I look back (laughs) and I'm like, how the hell did you give me that job? so i decided to get my mba i had graduated my undergrad with a 2.3 i had a terrible undergrad so it was very difficult to be into school my first choice wasn't mba i wanted to be a speech language pathologist because i wanted to use my voice my siblings thought that that's all i could do and they were like you should just do that it's 80 grand a year and like you'll be fine you know and so i was like okay fine applied to 14 speech language pathology schools and I got rejected from every single one. And I was like, okay, what do I do now? I started to apply to MBA schools. I obviously had a terrible GPA. So what I did is I cold emailed Elaine Frazier, who is the director of uh, the executive MBA program at NGIT, which was my alma mater. And I just emailed her like every week. Hey, like, nice to meet you. I was really persistent. And we ended up being like best friends Finally, she took a meeting with me at the school. I told her my story again, and she's like, Hala, I'll let you in the program if you promise that you're gonna get a 4.0, or you're gonna get kicked out of the program. And I was like, okay. I was like, I'll do it. And she was bluffing when she said that. Like, Then later on, she's like, you don't have to get a 4.0, but I got a 4.0. I graduated number one in my class. And during that, MBA allowed me to get an internship at Hewlett Packard. So it started as an internship. And I remember I went in my interview, like not dressed in a corporate way at all. Like I just hadn't, I had no idea what it was like to be corporate. <laughs> I ended up getting a job there and I got promoted very fast. I got promoted like four times in four years. I was an entrepreneur, so I took those skills and became an entrepreneur within the company. And I was literally the face of the young employees. What does that mean? HP had 300,000 employees all over the world. It was one of the biggest companies in the world. Huge. Huge. Yeah. And so there was, you know, 7,000 or so young employees that I could lead. My specific office had no chapter of the Young Employee Network. I went around and signed petitions to start our own Young Employee Network. And then I was the president for two years, and I started every single cultural event that the office had. I started their Christmas party, their holiday party, and got a lot of attention. That's why I got promoted so much, because I would literally have to always be like, hey, CEO, can I have five grand for the summer picnic, like, you know, <laughs> and like try to like, pitch these ideas. And so, my next thing was okay, I'm going to be the president of the Young Employee Network. All my peers wanted me to do it. Yeah,
1: you were putting in the time and the effort. And I put in
0: the work. I deserved it. You were the face. (laughs) I was the face. I deserved it. People like submitted video submissions to like pitch for me and vouch for me to be the global Young Employee Network president. And they didn't give it to me, they gave it to a kid who is brand new in the company and never even had any experience with it at all. They give it to a a, a guy and I was pissed.
1: Did that just feel reminiscent of those past rejections? I was,
0: oh my God, I was like, not again. It was working for free again. On top of my regular job, I was doing culture work at HP for free. It was the final straw. I was like, I can't do this again. I kept contributing to something that I don't own and now I wanna own my own thing. So I had the idea of starting Young and Profiting Podcast. And I think I took part of the name from the Young Employee Network. And I was like, you know what? Screw leading 7,000 people. Let me lead 7 million people. So I said, I'll start this Young and Profiting podcast and the rest is history.
1: There's this classic advice that you have to go above and beyond to succeed. While this is often true, this mentality can lead employees like Holly to get taken advantage of. It's easy to fall into this trap, especially when you're passionate and love what you're doing. At Hewlett-Packard, Holla had gone well past the bounds of her job description to make herself indispensable, just like she did at Hot 97. But when she was passed over for a top leadership position, everything changed. In an instant, all the countless hours of work would have felt like thankless exploitation, a painful feeling she'd felt before. She'd invested so much time into her work, and it was beginning to look like she wouldn't get a return on that investment. But this rejection wasn't a dead end. It reignited her creativity and entrepreneurial spirit. Now, Paula was ready to invest in herself.
0: It was right before winter break, December 2017. I was at Hewlett-Packard, and everybody was saying, what are your New Year's resolutions? We were sitting in the office and everybody was going around talking about their New Year's resolution. And I announced I'm starting a podcast and it's going to be ready by the time we get back from break. And that was not the case. I thought I could get this podcast launched in 12 days. And I like didn't even make a dent. I ended up launching in April 2018, but I had all this radio experience. So Young and Profiting Podcast is like my fifth show. It took me like two, three months to to get together. It was so much work. I had music. I interviewed like two to six people per episode. I would chop it up and narrate in between. I literally wrote an audiobook book for my first episode. It was called First Impressions. But it was amazing and honestly I don't regret it at all because I got so many fans right away who were fanatical and a lot of them ended up working for me. They, they reached out and said, hey your, your show is amazing. I want to just intern for you. I want to volunteer for you. And so by episode two I had my first volunteer timothy tan who's now my business partner and by episode eight i was getting huge guests for like how small i was and it was because we had such a quality show i had 10 volunteers in a slack channel who were helping me some people would do my videos i had one guy running my website and like helping me with graphics because from the start i had no intentions of monetizing i never knew any of this would happen i literally thought it was just going to be a hobby i was going to work corporate for the rest of my life and that this was just going to be a hobby i did on the side and The reason why I put out this show is because I wanted a way to share everything that I had learned. I had entered corporate really late in life and thought that I was going to be really behind my peers, but I quickly got promoted. I had made my first six figures. At the time, I was like, I'm successful and I want to teach other people how to be successful because I was a failed entrepreneur and I did figure my life out and I felt like I had a lot of entrepreneurship experience, but now I had corporate experience and I could talk to all different types of young people who were trying to make it. And I think that I came about it with so much care. Like I really, really cared about my content and people really just respected what we were doing and and believed in me. Even though I was getting big guests and getting downloads, I was growing my LinkedIn following. It wasn't until my downloads really skyrocketed and it all started because I had grown my LinkedIn following in tandem with my podcast podcast but I was really good at hacking LinkedIn. And so after I didn't get the Young Employee Network presidency, I left and started working at Disney streaming services. I ended up moving to New York and I would have to take the train into work. So every morning on the train, I'd, I would write my LinkedIn post and every way back I would do all my engagement and comment engagement. And I ended up growing my following on LinkedIn to about 60,000 followers over like a year and a half. Then I reached out to all the apps, not knowing what I was doing. I was just shooting my shot. And I was like, hey, CastBox, uh, I have 60,000 followers on LinkedIn. They're super engaged. Let me do a contest for you. And in exchange, could you feature me in your app? So all these apps started featuring me inside. And at the time, I didn't realize that these were paid ad spots that people would pay like 10000 to do. And only people who were in podcast networks really got those opportunities. All of a sudden, I went from getting like 4,000 downloads a month to like 10,000 or 15,000 downloads a day. And my show blew up. And then I landed the cover of podcast magazine January 2021, which was huge. <laughs> The other turning point was the fact that all the guests that came on my show would always ask me the same thing. They'd get off the show and they'd be like, Hala, who does your marketing? They always thought I, I paid for it. And I'd be like, oh, I've got like these volunteers. You know, I'm in marketing. I know how to do graphics and videos. So I would teach my team. And then they would say, well, could you do that for me? And I would say this over and over again. I'm really busy. I have a job, I, this is a hobby. I'm sorry. Like, I, I can't help you. So Heather Monahan, she came on episode 52 or something like that, and she would not leave me alone. She reached out to me and she was like, Holly, your videos are amazing. I need to take a call with you. She was so impressed and she said, I literally got off a call with Media last week and your stuff is more impressive. She's like, do you understand that you have a business? You have a marketing agency. What you're doing for yourself, you could do for other people and you can quit your job. And I was like, I have a great job, Heather. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, I wasn't thinking about quitting my job. And so I kept pushing her off. And then finally I was like, okay, fine. I'll do your videos. I just like leveraged the same people that were working for me to do her videos. So I ended up taking over all of Heather's social and podcast. Before I knew it, I landed my next client, which was almost a 30k a month retainer. His name is Jason Waller and I grew his show to number one and he invited me on his podcast and he knows Heather He was interested in my services and me and Tim were like, let's just put 10k on every service And it turned out to be almost a 30k retainer And so uh, a lot of our volunteers that were working for us for free started getting paid at that point point. And then we just started landing client after client We got Kara Golden, Brian Scudamore of one got junk Alex Carter, Stephanie Malik Then I figured out how to grow all my client shows and I leveraged all the relationships I had with the brands and apps that would sponsor me from the past.
1: Paula had figured out how to leverage the relationships she had nurtured and it paid off and she used some tried and true rules of success to get there. Paula was relentless and with her give one, get one, there was always a level of reciprocity in her network. This way, she wouldn't risk anyone feeling undervalued or used as she had so many times before. But it wasn't just her network that kept growing her audience.
0: We made almost $2 million in our first year.
1: That's insane.
0: I had no idea that it it would happen so fast. In fact, it took me so long to quit my job at Disney. I had 35 employees. I had like three full-time U.S. employees. And I was still working at Disney because I was just in disbelief. I was like, well, this is really going to keep going. Like what's happening. And then finally, when I got on the cover of podcast magazine, I was like, this is it. I need to like, just focus. Before we were even making money, I was working my butt off. I would wake up super early and work on the podcast. I'd go to work. I would do my interviews during lunch. I would work on the train. I would work till midnight. I would work on the weekends. And I did that for two years. I was hustling for so long that it was like everything was just like ready. I had just built something that was so ready to scale and duplicate.
1: Finally, two long years of nonstop hustling were paying off. It was the kind of hustling that meant bathroom interviews and late nights. But Hala didn't care. When she walked away from Strawberry Blunt, she felt she walked away from a potential gold mine. But this time, she was going to keep digging until she struck her gold. And eventually, she did. Holly was now reaping the gains of her hard work and doing so in spades because she put in years of effort. And honestly, her story isn't too far off from our own podcast. I guess, like, what advice would you have for when you were on, like, the precipice? How did you channel all of that excitement and that energy towards even more productivity? And also, how do you expand your vision as you get more success? Like what has your vision become?
0: Let me start with, let me start with the advice piece. So my, so I think the reason why everything worked out for me is because Heather gave me a chance to pilot something with no risk. I charged so little because I was like, I don't know if we can do this and I don't want to do this and like, I'll try it. And if it works out, I'm down. And then I realized like, as I was doing that for her, I was like, I'm so good at this. I was an entrepreneur before I know how to train my team. I could do this in my sleep. This is easy. This could be a viable business I got to test how to how to do podcast research for someone else and coordinate somebody else's podcast so by the time I was pitching Jason Waller I knew that I could do it and I figured you know I'm a Disney executive I come with a lot of experience my team is the best of the best Heather said we're as good as VaynerMedia so I'm gonna shoot my shot and we thought he was gonna like slice our price in half but he didn't and he never complained about the price. And we're like, okay, let's just target the people who come on our podcast. They're CEOs, billionaires, millionaires, influencers, celebrities. They can afford this. And let's just be the high-ticket premier marketing and podcast agency out there and let's go high ticket and uh, we refused to take deals under 7k a month and and we were just like nope we're just going to take the big the big projects if you don't want a big projects if you can't afford it you we're not for you you know we want to have high quality it's high ticket and so we just decided that that was going to be us So I would say test first, make sure there's demand. And even to this day, I never advertise for my agency. It's all incoming leads, whether that's referring people, whether that's the people that come on my podcast or people just uh, message me off my website. I never outwardly try to like cold email, cold call to get any sort of clients. It's all incoming and we do a great job. So I feel like we're super high quality and uh, everybody knows us as kind of the premier podcasting social and uh, podcast agency.
1: Hala refused to settle. She knew her company's value and how much work it took to get there. But there was another element that fed into Hala's success. Her gig with Heather wasn't just an opportunity to do something without risk. It provided the space she needed to explore something new, to look at possibilities she hadn't considered before. And that's where she began to thrive. It gave her the confidence she needed to assert her value as a person and as an entrepreneur and things would only continue to grow from there. So what are you most excited for in the future? And what is the vision expanded to?
0: So now I, like I said, I I know how to grow shows and I feel like I'm one of like four independent podcasters that know how to do that. And I've grown Jason Waller's show to number one in his category. I've grown Kara Golden's show to number one in her category and my show. And now everybody's signing to the Yap Media Network and I'm starting my own podcast network and we're moving over to Megaphone Enterprise Hosting and I'm about to sell commercials on all of the shows that I've grown and recruit new shows to join uh, Yap media network. So we're starting a podcast network and we are super differentiated because there are no podcast networks that have a social media marketing arm. So we have both. We can grow your show, Uh, do the audio editing, do whatever you need and sell ads and and, uh, be a proper podcast network. So we're end to end and it makes us super differentiated that we know how to do marketing as
1: well. That is uh, very exciting. I have no doubt that you'll absolutely crush it. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited to get into editing this. And also, like, I think the the team is going to be excited to listen to it, too.
0: You're super talented, Sam. I'm really excited for you. I feel like this whole process and the output that you create is magnificent. And I I have no doubt that you guys are going to be just as successful. I I see it in you. I feel like we've got the same kind of, like, vibrant energy. And I just wish you the best.
1: Yeah, you definitely have vibrant energy. You you put it out there. Thank you. (laughs) Listening to Hala, it isn't hard to see how she made it here. She exudes confidence and determination, qualities we often feel are a shoo-in for success. But Hala's story demonstrates something different. Sometimes success is beyond our control, as it was at Hot 97 when Hala worked tirelessly only to realize that she was expendable. It was this rejection, however, that served as fuel for something different, something better she would prove to herself and others that her relentless drive wasn't disposable, that her skills had value. And this time, when she was in the driver's seat, she'd ensure that her employees wouldn't experience what she did. Her story is a reminder that, yeah, rejection's going to happen, and yeah, it might suck, but at the end of the day, this is your journey, and your work has value. So while a lot of things aren't in your control, it's important to remember that there are plenty that are. So whether it's a rejection email or a promotion you didn't get, don't let it deflate you. Use it as fuel to propel you. You might find yourself surprised at the kind of results you get. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner.
0: Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lin.
1: Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. With support from... Irene Van Burkel, Matt Fernandez. B. Cannon, Sophia Donner. Maura Lynch. Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez. Michael Chung. Nicholas Guzman. Aaron Devereaux. Sanessa Gisley. And Lois Choi.
0: Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton.
1: Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen, with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanasa Gizli. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand, with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dane, Jonathan Wass
0: and Diana Marie Candelza.
1: To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.